from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how Goldman Sachs aligns sustainable investing with philanthropy, why regulation equals innovation, at least in Europe, and introducing the 2020 class of GreenBiz 30 Under 30. The kids are all right, this week on 350. It's June 10th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, on the cusp of summer is the always sunny <laughs> editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. <laughs> you have such a wonderful opinion of me. Thank you very much. I, how are you, Joel? You're I, always, I know I'm not, al- I'm not always happy. I'm kind no, of, of I can be. Nobody can be, but you, you, you do a pretty damn good job of that. So, uh, good actress, good actress. <laughs> I am great today. So how are you, yeah. Joel? I, well, I'm good, but you should be especially great because we have had did some, <laughs> some great additions to your editorial team, our, our Green Biz editorial team that you so, uh, successfully and lovingly run. Uh, talk a little bit <laughs> about who's new on the team. I am, yes, super happy to say that we have basically doubled the number of people that that are part of my team. Uh, we have a managing editor, which is super wonderful. She'll be handling a lot of the process stuff that we need to get. Uh, I don't think people realize just how much it takes to get the site and all the newsletters out, but LaRonda Peterson Hello, LaRonda. I am so thrilled to have you as my partner. And uh, in, I would say in crime, but it's it's cr- crime and and, uh, and and shenanigans, I guess I'll call it. But uh, yeah, super, super excited to say that we have a, a new managing editor and a, a climate tech reporter, Leah Garden, who that's a brand new position that will be coming in to really build out our coverage of climate technologies, picking up our energy and transportation coverage in particular. So we're, we're building a, a team of wonderful, wonderful editors. They join Jesse Klein and Deanna Anderson. So I have my, um, like, like girl power team here going. Yeah, but, I know. But um, uh, yeah, I so mean, much it's, for it's, gender diversity. Right? I know. I, I was, yeah, anyway. What, but we have, hey, we a lot, have a lot of male freelancers. Yeah. So, um, but in, in all seriousness, it's, it's a really great boost. We are investing in the editorial product here at Green Biz, I'm really excited to say, and, and this is just the start. So thank you for mentioning that. And welcome, LaRonda and Leah. So thrilled to have yeah, you. And you who write the uh, annual Badass Women uh, <laughs> feature now have four of them on your team. I but- do. I do. Um, so I was going to ask you, I mean, like, it's hard to keep track of you <laughs> right now. Where are you right now? I think you, you said you were in Oakland, so you're at home yeah. right now, but you haven't been home that much lately and i think you're about to be away for quite a bit so where are you going and why well uh yeah last week uh, as as i reported and we ran a segment uh on, on the podcast i was in amsterdam for uh, some circular economy related uh events and meetings uh and next week i'm uh, headed to sao paulo brazil 
uh, to spend some time with a company called Susano, one of the uh, world's largest uh, producers of, of pulp mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and paper products, um, particularly pulp. Yeah. Uh, and they are, uh, I think, really leading the way in sustainability and biodiversity and a number of other things have some, I think, pretty impressive commitments. They're having their annual ESG day and uh, for their community and investors and others. And I'm going to be uh, taking part of that. And from there... I'm going to head directly, do not pass go, uh, to New York uh, for our GreenFit conference, where I'll see you and about uh, five or 600 of our closest friends mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. to that event uh, on sustainable finance and ESG. That's um, shaped up to be a really, um, I mean, I, I'm refraining from using the word badass again, but a really great event in terms of the some very uh, amazing speakers yeah. um, uh, and just uh, sell solid content. And I, and I have to say, you know, and we can't take a lot of credit for this, but the timing is just amazing. What's going on right now with ESG, you know, six months ago, the story was trillions of dollars pouring into ESG funds. Now, some of those trillions are pouring out uh, and there's a lot of scrutiny and pushback, skepticism, and criticism mm-hmm. of ESG ratings and rankings and sustainable finance and, and all those funds in general. So there's going to be a lot to talk about right there on Wall Street in, uh, in uh, well, Chelsea, just off of Wall Street in lower Manhattan on June 28th and 29th. Yeah. Kudos to Grant Harrison for pulling in all those, <laughs> those super speakers. He, I know he's been real, working real hard on the program. I'm really excited to be doing an interview with the CEO of State Street, Ron O'Hanley. I'm excited really excited about, about that one. Um, there's some really terrific speakers, though. Uh, I, you know, I actually, before we, we delve a little bit more into the program, I just want to mention, Joel, before you go to Brazil, Susana, Susano just started a venture fund this, this week on um, climate technology. So just I'm, I'm excited to hear more about that. That was one of those things that hit my radar, and then I filed it for future follow-up. So I'm going to follow up with you on that one. I expect to report on that one. But for Greenfin, what are you what are you going to be spending your time on? I mean, there's so many different topics that we could uh, we could dive into. Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to be part of the welcome, the opening with uh, ah, with Grant, yes. uh, since uh, we're, we were sort of partners in crime on this event. Although he really uh, gets pretty much all the credit for building this thing out, I was just sort of helping him in the background. The assist, uh, the big assist, to, yeah, big assist. Um, I'm leading a main stage session called Can the ISSB Actually Fit ESG Standards? And that's a lot of acronyms for one uh, one title, but this is the uh, International Sustainable Standards Board that is is creating this global standards for ESG to to the standards uh, to end all standards, I guess. And <laughs> and the question is, you know, is that really uh, possible? We'll have somebody from CalSTRS, the California State Teachers Retirement System and and uh, the head of uh, of ESG and corporate reporting for EY, Ernst & Young. And then I'm doing a breakout uh, that's uh, uh, not coincidentally uh, the same title as uh, as part of the series that I produced uh, for Green Biz back, uh, I guess, in May, called The Secret Life of ESG Ratings, mm-hmm. um, with uh, mm-hmm. three great speakers from S&P Global, Jeffries, the investment firm, and uh, BNP, Paribas Invest Asset Management. Um, so... That's the that's it, and then uh, hosting some lunches and dinners, and just hanging out with the cool kids in sustainable finance. Busy, 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 busy. Yeah, it's going to be a great two weeks. Uh, so from here to Brazil to New York, back here, and then 
no travel that I know of in July and August. So I'm pretty excited about that as well. As fun as it is to go places, it's great to be home in the summer. So anyway, it's not quite summer. It's That happens next week. But let's go back to this week and the Week in Review. So let's go to Europe, Joel, for the first Week in Review piece. Where God, I was I, just there. Yeah, I wish I had yeah, known. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, hit, you filed, as you mentioned earlier, a dispatch from the Cradle to Cradle conference, uh, the Circular Shift conference that you were speaking at from uh, Heather Barker of Reckitt. And we, I encourage people to back up and, and listen to that segment. But you also wrote a column this week about your time there. And I particularly loved it because you pointed to how regulation could be a driver of innovation. I love this theme. I, I just, I read it. I was like, oh, yes, yes. Like, this is the way to look at it. You know, don't look at it as a uh, obligation, but look at it as a, a way of sparking of sparking new things. So tell me a little bit more about the uh, folks you were speaking with and and how you developed this thesis. Sure. Well, um, it's not a new thesis, in fact, uh, that that regulation spurs innovation. In fact, uh, Michael Porter, the, the renowned uh, Harvard Business School economist and strategy professor, pointed this out uh, in the 90s uh, around environmental regulation and how that was spurring uh, not only induced efficiencies, but can encourage innovations that actually help improve environmental performance. And that's become known as the Porter Hypothesis. Uh, but uh, we didn't talk about uh, Michael Porter in, in Amsterdam last week. But uh, what was interesting is I had this uh, this panel at the Circular Shift Conference, which was put on by the Cradle to Cradle Product Innovation Institute uh, with Heather Barker from Record, who we mentioned, and uh, uh, Mads Hansen from the consumer electronics company Bang & Olufsen, and Alice Sush from uh, a company called Bay City Textile Handles, which is a, a textile company that's both a wholesaler and also produces its own products. Um, and what came out of that, it wasn't the theme. The theme of the of the session was actually about how uh, how to communicate with consumers about this. But what came out of that panel and also the whole day was the realization that so much of what's driving circular economy in Europe, which is substantially ahead of where it is here in the U.S., is the regulatory environment uh, that the EU is is put out? There's a a number of uh, there's a, some overarching themes around the, the European Green Deal and the Circular Economy Action Plan that come out of the the European Commission and the, you know in the European Union. And then within that, there is a number of of, of smaller things. Just for example, uh, just last week, uh, the European Union proposed a, a law requiring all new smartphones and tablets sold within the EU borders to have a common charging port by 2024 and for laptops by 2026. So going to have some some universality to these connectivity points. And one of the out- outcomes of that is that Apple's lightning connector, which is the default plug on a lot of its iPhones and other gadgets, will no longer uh, be possible, at least in Europe. So uh, so the question is, you know, some that may not seem like re- innovation and Apple may you know, argue that this is actually taking taking things backwards. I don't really know how they're going to react because they haven't yet. But the point is, is that this is driving a lot of innovation in electronics and in information technology, in batteries and vehicles, packaging, plastics, textiles, construction, food, and so, so many other sectors. 
And, you know, they talk about leveraging the power of the single market. These, uh, I think it's 27 countries now that are, you know, part of the EU uh, trading block. They're leveraging that to really drive things forward. So I was impressed uh, that, you know, in, in the U.S., regulation is a bad thing and it stifles innovation and it doesn't leave things to market forces. At least those are the arguments. But there's another case to be made that maybe it can be uh, be a uh, positive force, just like Michael Porter said it would be. Yeah, I just, it just, you know, I know it's not a new thing, but it's just, it's just such a different mindset than from here, right? So here in the United States, there's such a begrudging regard for many regulations, and I just wish we could get to the same yeah. spirit. Well, so. it depends which party, of course, is putting out the regulation because, <gasps> you know, there's some regulations that are beloved by the Republicans because they propose them and others that are hated because the Democrats pose, oh, no. pose them. And so, you know, that's that's this tribal warfare that we're mm-hmm. in, in the midst of is hyperpartisanship is is a problem. And that's just, that's not news and it's hardly limited to sustainability. Uh, but, uh, you know. As we look at at what needs to happen in our economy and how to push things further faster, um, leaving things to market forces is is you know a nice ideal, and it's it's a, it's certainly a, one espoused by by some on, on parts of the political spectrum, and, and and including myself. I think it, the market can do a lot of great things. But the market can't do everything, and the market needs uh, both a floor uh, to, to, to sort of, that needs to be rising all the time. What's you know what's the minimum standard, if you will, and and it needs uh, innovations and carrots, both carrots and sticks, to to incent the kinds of changes. And sometimes you know we saw this with with uh, ozone depleting uh, substances uh, that were that was uh, the hydrocarbon uh, mm-hmm. chlor. chlor- Chlorofluorocarbons that were depleting <laughs> the ozone layer. That's been Ooh, so long since I've said that. Better, word. better to, you had, saying that than me. Yeah, I had to recall <laughs> what it was, um, and uh, and that unleashed a whole bunch of innovation that actually got uh, solved some of the same challenges that chlorofluorocarbons had been had been solving in terms of uh, you know styrofoam and other kinds of things uh, without depleting the ozone layer, and so. Innovation regulation can spur innovation in a very positive way that makes sense for business, uh, the economy, and and of course the environment. So, and uh, people and other people, uh, uh, humans, people, obviously, right? Yes, obviously, <laughs> people. Yes, absolutely, Heather. Yeah. And so, yeah, a lesson to be learned from Europe, one of many, and um, uh, it was an eye opener for me, and I hope for the Green Biz reader. But let's go to our really big story of the week, uh, which is our annual uh, opus uh, that, <laughs> and, and, and I don't mean to turn this into the, you know, all praise for Heather's show. No, <laughs> Epi- it's but not you me. Dry- episode 320, where we uh, put Heather <laughs> on a pedestal. No! Um, uh, but you drive this, uh, as you do the entire editorial team, our 30 under 30 class. And now in its, what, sixth, seventh year, I forget where we are. And... Um, this year's cast of characters, so this year's uh, cohort of 30 under 30, is just spectacular. It, it is so great. And it's, uh, uh, you know, we, it's always great. And, uh, but for some reason, we find just uh, uh, an increasingly more impressive group 
of emerging professionals in sustainability. Um, talk a little bit about what it was like this year and 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 how you feel about this. So, <laughs> Besides so relief, I told well, <laughs> yeah. First of all, yes, I I may have driven it from a strategic standpoint, but this was one of those Herculean efforts of editing and writing. So every single person on the editorial team um, played a role, uh, especially our, our intrepid senior editor, uh, former managing editor, Elsa Wenzel, who just deserves total props for getting this thing out the door and really driving and driving and driving the deadline. So I'll just say that before I delve into the list. Yeah, it was super hard to pick to pick the the cohort this year, and it was. I mean, and that it just speaks to for me. It actually speaks to the opportunity to go back to kind of almost the theme of of the last story. There's so much great opportunity for careers in this space. Um, everything from, you know, the, there's a a policy expert from the European Commission here on sustainable finance. Super important role. We have someone from Weyerhaeuser, the huge land management company we've got. You know, there's people all over the map. Uh, and I, actually, I shouldn't even start listing them <laughs> because uh, I don't want to miss out on any of the 30 because everyone is so equally strong. But we, we have policy experts. We have venture capitalists. We have entrepreneurs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of um, folks who represent the sustainability programs at large companies, but also procurement teams, right? So and that's that's the other thing for me. It's as we look at this list, the the titles are very different than the first first year that we we started publishing um, the titles. You know, there's a there's a risk management um, director here. I, it, this this is one of the folks that I interviewed, and I'm gonna me- actually I'm gonna mention by name because he's just super impressive. Miles Braxton, um, who is the incoming director for risk management with Summit Ridge Energy. Um, this is an example of one of several people on the list who actually changed jobs <laughs> while we were we were interviewing, uh, you know, while we were putting this together. But Miles, uh, who is a black man, I'll just call that out, is also the co-founder and director of a, this organization that I found find fascinating. It's called Black Oak Collective, and it's really focused on helping uh, young black professionals find careers in clean energy and also other sustainability um, you know items and 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 so I, I I want to just call out that so many of these people are doing things that are extraordinarily important not just in their day job but but aside you know this is an extra thing that he does he, he based on his experience um, you know in finding looking for a job in the industry I should also probably call out and, and just note that one of our former colleagues is on here. You know, you know Shandine better than me, so why don't you say a couple words about her? Yeah, this was the first for us that we uh, we sort of uh, uh, named somebody in, 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 I guess we've done now over 230 under 30s, and it's the first time we've named someone who's sort of in the family, Shandine Cedar, who was uh, uh, part of our, our sales team uh, uh, until she uh, sadly left us to go travel the world uh, uh, pre-pandemic and spent a lot of time down in New Zealand and, and Australia. Came back to uh, to Oakland to work for Powerhouse Ventures, the venture fund and, uh, and incubator that focuses on um, energy-related startups. Uh, and, and it was great to bring her in. Uh, Sean Dean is a Navajo tribal member and has been very active in addition to her work in sustainable technologies 
uh, with an organization called Natives Outdoors, which uh, I think she's on the board of, which has the mission to empower indigenous communities through uh, products and storytelling for a sustainable world. Uh, so shout out to Sean Dean. So great to see you on there. I don't think we'll be giving these out to uh, to our, our staff or anyone else, but it is some, you know, it is fun to f- somebody who we've known for uh, maybe five or six years now uh, to see and still under 30 uh, who rises to the, the, the status and where we, you know, rose to the top in this list of hundreds of people that we vetted to get to the 30. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So Heather, you've queued up some of the voices yeah. of, of the 30 under 30, which we're going to play now. Uh, uh, queue it up for us. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not going to introduce them each of them because they will do that themselves. But yeah, we've we've got some audio that we'll be featuring over the next few episodes and meet the first five of those individuals from this year's 2022 Green Biz 30 Under 30. I am Allison Ward. I'm a senior sustainable materials engineer at Dell Technologies. I'm in our experience design group, which is our design team at Dell, working on how do we create recycled renewable materials for our products and then lower the environmental and social impacts of those materials. I would probably build out a large sustainable materials team to kind of tackle all the materials that are out there. Because right now we're at the point where I mean, with any company, there's limited resources, so we have to focus on, you know, our heavy hitters, but there's so much opportunity out there. And again, so many things that aren't even on our radar yet. So many, I think, you know, conflict minerals, things like 3TG or cobalt or stuff that, you know, I think the industry is aware of, but, you know, we just need to dig in more. And then also I'd love to do like a traceability project on where are all these materials going today, supply chain mapping. There's pockets of it in different industries, um, a little bit in the IT industry, but it's kind of intimidating if you think about what that map would look like going from, you know, either end of life or binding of materials through production and how many different webs and across mater- uh, global material movement. It's it's fascinating to me to think about how very difficult to do and track and manage, but just how interconnected everything is. Hi, I'm Alex Plaza. I'm a partner with Lower Carbon Capital, a early stage venture capital fund that invests in technologies and solutions to reduce and remove greenhouse gas emissions at scale. Frankly, before Stanford, I probably I probably couldn't even have defined venture capital. I also didn't explicitly seek it out uh, this the opportunity to lower carbon. I uh, I think when I got to Stanford, what appealed to me of being exposed to venture capital, what appealed to me was the focus on scale, on just scaling solutions. In a way, venture capital is almost like applied innovation, right? You're you're funneling resources often to science, technology, innovation, you know, far too often innovations that don't really serve anyone um, or, or anyone other than just assets, bubbles, et cetera. But, you know, I thought if you could apply it to meaningful technologies and solutions in climate, then the focus on scale uh, and, the, and the mechanisms to scale was intriguing. Personally, at the time, so I was studying international policy at Stanford and, you know, it was really tough to and this was during the Trump administration, just tough to think like, man, you can spend your whole career trying to push one policy over the line. And if you do, you know, that's the biggest lever you can have. The policy is the biggest lever of change, but, but then someone can come in and put a signature on paper and undo your life's work. And that's not what I wanted for my career. 
And also at the time I was studying under uh, two professors of mine who are investors at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Dave Danielson and Joel Moxley. And I thought it was the coolest job ever. It's like you get to expose to all these new, exciting solutions and you get to, in your day-to-day work, have tangible impacts on, on those solutions. Um, so, so that's probably the, the three reasons. The scale, you know, having tangible impacts and yeah, just fearing the vagaries of policy. Hi, my name is Shante Harris, and I'm the Director of Climate Investment and Partnerships for Venture for Climate Tech at Second Use. One thing I've been saying a lot over the past couple of years is that we tend to silo like the climate justice conversation from climate finance and investment, uh, when really, in my opinion, they're one and the same. Because if we don't, uh, you know, both source and fund and scale diverse solutions, uh, we actually aren't finding the best solutions, right? And that's not, you know, just an altruistic conversation. It's backed by data. Like we know more diverse teams do better. uh, They have better outputs. Um, We also know from all the data around founders now, right, that female founders and underrepresented founders um, have higher outputs with less funding because of the fact that they're not, you know, they're not, people aren't necessarily jumping in line to fund them given the stats that we have. We need everyone to solve the climate crisis. Climate innovation comes from the best ideas. The best ideas come from a diversity of thought. And so when I think about climate finance, it's really about, okay, the reality is that people have implicit bias. They have, uh, you know, people fund or work with the people that they know. And most of the time, the people we know look like us. And so what does it mean to have diversity on cap tables for founders? Even the, I mean, most of our founders want diverse uh, advisory boards. They want diverse investors on their cap table, not just because it's nice, but they understand the value that that person brings because of their different lived experience. Um, so for me, yeah, I, I talk a lot about climate justice being a inevitably tied to climate investment and climate finance. And we see that with, you know, energy impact partners and what Vita's doing to fund underrepresented founders in this space. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll see even more of that, like a, a, a very intentional approach to how we identify and fund solutions um, from everyone, right? Hi, I'm Kyle Ritchie. I'm the author of the Circular Economy for Dummies and the Sustainable Design Lead at Canon Design. Once we explain that um, there's, there's a real monetary value to utilizing the circular economy in our project, um, it's, it's not talking about sustainability, it's talking about outcomes. And this is really the, the better strategy than just going in with, you know, we want to make this building sustainable. You know, that's not specific. So with a really simple structure from the circular economy, we're actually saving them money while also um, regenerating natural systems and um, giving you know the natural environment an opportunity to bounce back. And so it's it's kind of finding this middle ground between it's smart in terms of business, but it's also really beneficial from an environmental standpoint. I think it'd be great to help design a building that then later down the road, I'm able to be part of its disassembly and reuse. I think that would be like the ultimate. If I can, if I can work on a work on a building twice at the beginning and its end, like being able to participate in the, the disassembly or deconstruction of a building that I originally helped design um, and find new uses for those materials, I think would be kind of the icing on the cake for my career. Hi, I'm Raven Hernandez, founder and CEO of EarthRides. Earth is an all-electric rideshare app 
that's focused on accelerating the adoption of clean technology. Anyone on my team knows if they tell me that it can't be done, I say, all right, I'm going to need you to figure it out because if you don't, I'm going to get it done. And then I'm going to be looking at you thinking, I told you this could happen. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm that kind of person who I just, I, I will things into existence. And I know that sounds kind of like woo woo or maybe like egotistical in the sense of I'm always in my vortex of trying to bring what is for me to me. And so, you know, that parking spot in the front, maybe people don't always go pull up to the front of the building because they think there's never going to be any parking, but I always pull up to the front because everyone else did it. And that's kind of my, you know, belief in myself that I can continue to persevere and always find a way to get it done. To me, there is no such thing as no, it's just, you're knocking on the wrong door. That's not your door. Figure out which door is for you and just be persistent and be bold and trying to get what you want to accomplish done. There's so much opportunity in this space, but it's going to take a lot of hard work and it's going to take a lot of dedication, a lot of sacrifice. And, you know, it's going to take proving ourselves. I always like to go the route of showing that it makes sense financially. I think that's really important. You know, we can have these dreams of a cleaner, greener environment, but it, it has to make sense for the human and humans, you know, we have this concept of money and trading with time. And so making sure that the return goes beyond just the clean benefits, because I think that's really what brings everyone together. You know, I always like to think that a healthy environment isn't a partisan issue because a healthier environment allows for, you know, less medical expenses and less cleanup issues. And it just, it, it creates a healthier economy, quite frankly. So when thinking about going into this space, I think, you know, trying to mix, how do we blend the two worlds of the financial and the, uh, you know, eco-friendly component together? I'm Grant Harrison, Green Biz Group's Director and Senior Analyst for Sustainable Finance and ESG, and I recently had the chance to sit down for a chat with Asahi Pompei, President of the Goldman Sachs Foundation and an all-around infectiously optimistic force of a human being. Sustainable investing is a pretty broad category, so I asked Pompei how she conceptualizes corporate philanthropy's role in shifting the investment industry to support the transition to a clean and just economy. You know, my view may be somewhat controversial, but I always think that I'm trying to get myself out of business, right? I'm trying to work myself out of a job in terms of the need for philanthropy. You know, I think, truth be told, philanthropy will always have a place. But the reason I say that is to say that if we can find ways to invest in communities, invest in people, that it's providing returns, then I think it would decrease the need for as much philanthropy as, as there is uh, at the moment. But I think a lot of it is around, one, I think accountability uh, in this space, and there's just a lot you know, of going on in this space, and sort of how do you measure it, what's going on, what's happening with it, what's the role of philanthropy. So I think accountability in the space is really important, and I think that's at the core of everything that we do at the firm. Um, the other two things I'd say is sort of sunlight and 
transparency, right? You know, the constant need to sort of measure impact, hold ourselves accountable and have others, frankly, hold us accountable, which we know they will as they should. And so I think those are some of the cornerstones of the movement. And I think we're going to see even more and more of that in terms of real measures and metrics. The ESG investing space has, of course, exploded these past two years, but not without commensurate pushback, which has been intensifying in recent weeks. I asked Pompey how, as a corporate foundation focused on allocating capital sustainably, the ESG critiques have or have not resonated with her. Look, I think some of the criticism is coming from the right place. I never shy away from criticism. Um, I feel like there's something to learn there. Either you're not doing it and you should be criticized um, and you say you're doing it and you're really not, or there's a disconnect between your messaging. Maybe you're not being as clear as you should be around it. Maybe there's a perception problem and you've got to address that. So I always think like when I hear a critique of a space, I always think, okay, what's underlying the critique? Is it just skepticism or is there something more that you should be doing or doing differently? And so I think the critique in this particular space is around one, is there a dichotomy or, or you know, is there, is there a false dichotomy between profitability and, and reaching sustainable goals? That's like the first one. Um, the second one is around, yeah, you know, we know we hear you guys talk about measures and metrics, but, you know, what's the real impact? What is it over time? Um, you know, are things being double counted? All of those things, I think, are important critiques that should be addressed up front with sunlight and transparency and data and real sort of open book around whether, you know, our sustainability report that we just published last month or attempts to say, look, we, we're going to open up around what's happening here because um, I think criticism is welcomed and we want to show you what we're doing. And, you know, we think it's good. We think it's really impactful. And if there's more we need to learn from this dialogue, then we're looking to do that because look, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? We're all sort of marching towards this goal and it won't be a straight line. There are going to be some, some curves along the way. And I think that comes from a dialogue, which is hopefully a engaged dialogue around what are you doing? What more can possibly be done? So I don't shy away from the critique. I, I want to embrace it and think about what we could be doing more or different or frankly, communicate our, our message in a different way. You just heard Asahi Pompei, president of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We've got seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Our address, as always, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 